0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. Today we finish the What's in a Name series, where we look at films who uh, impacted Twin Peaks directly on character names. These were Laura, Vertigo, and now Sunset Boulevard. Of course, there's many more connections than that that we explore, but that's kind of the jumping off point. And uh, in January, we'll start a new three-part series and continue this Uh, format as the podcast goes along. We'll save that uh, announcement till the end of this podcast. On my other podcasts, I have actually abandoned the, well, paused the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast. Uh, There will be another uh, week of episodes later this month on the season one finale, but I'm no longer doing it week to week through September of next year, which was my original plan. I just couldn't get ahead. It was too hard to keep up with it. So, uh, what I'm probably going to do is, after I finish season one, take a long break, build up a little backlog, and uh, at least put out the Firewalk with Me episode for the 30th anniversary next year. Or I should say, Firewalk with Me episodes. There's many of those, and they're longer than the usual ones. Uh, and then, if I'm able to get it uh, prepared ahead of time, the season three episodes over that summer, because that'll be the fifth anniversary. So, that's my plan for the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, where I go through. Every episode of Twin Peaks, uh, over a week, different category each day for each episode. I had the illustrated companions and so forth. Um, it's it's just going to have to wait for the moment. Uh, the other podcast, of course, is Lost in the Movies, my main podcast. Uh, on that feed, I've slowed down to once a month, just like I do with this Twin Peaks cinema podcast. And the most recent episode covered the film... Um, Well, two films, actually Brawl and Cell Block 99 and The Devil Rides Out that wrapped up this season of uh, Lost in the Movies. So you can check that out, too. And on my Patreon podcast, I just put out a couple episodes, uh, including coverages of uh, Field of Dreams and Drugstore Cowboy relating those films to Twin Peaks. And I also uh, published my Twin Peaks conversations with the hosts of the Peaks Chats podcast who had me on a few months ago, so I returned the favor there. So you can check that all out in the show notes. Uh, links are there. And of course, on my site, I've got a whole bunch of other work that uh, I won't mention here. But let's move on now to Sunset Boulevard to discuss the connections in this film that features characters named Norma and, of course, Gordon Cole. a Hopper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies, the little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me, the great ones like Cecil B. DeMille, all those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Sunset Boulevard is the story of a screenwriter and a movie star. The screenwriter is a young, well, relatively young man, probably early 30s at this point. He's been around Hollywood for a while, he's been kicked around a lot, he's kind of at the end of his luck. And the movie star is a washed-up superstar from the 1920s, and this film is 1950, it came out, so you know, you'd do the math. Uh, She was kind of an icon of the flapper age, of the jazz age, and particularly of the silent age, when movies were silent. And she lost her career when the talkies came in, as did many. This was really a generational phenomenon. And the way these two characters come together is that uh, Joe Gillies, who's played by William Holden, is on the run from debt collectors, turns into a driveway blind just to get out of the road and has a, I can't remember if he blows his tire in the road or if he blows his tire turning into the driveway to get away from them, but it's this old mansion. He kind of wanders around. He's mistaken for uh, somebody else, and he ends up meeting this woman, Norma Desmond, who's 50 years old now. She's living with her butler and sort of all-around assistant helper, Max von Merling, who, as it turns out, was actually the director who discovered her as a teenager made her career, and actually married her. He was her first husband. And uh, he's come back to be her servant in be uh, out of both a sense of pity and loyalty and also love. He's still in love with her. He can't bear life without her. So he writes her fake fan letters and has her signing all these autographs so that she'll think she still has admirers. She's very delusional and out of it and away from the world. This house that she lives in is... Almost, it's almost like he kind of stumbled into an alternate universe somehow, which may be the first of our little Twin Peaks connections here. But he's convinced to stay along because uh, he needs somewhere to hide out. So, you know, he's looking for the opportunity and she wants to write a screenplay about Salome, the uh, woman who, uh, I believe, seduced Herod so that she could behead him, if I'm remembering the story correctly. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) She... That makes no sense. Herod was never beheaded. Uh, she's the the slave girl who becomes Herod's lover, and she asks him to bring her John the Baptist's head on a plate, and so he does. So that that's the story there. And actually, interesting little connection we'll make a uh, divergence here for. The Salome was actually a play that Cheryl Lee was in, where she played the title character at the time that Fire Walk With Me came out. She was on Broadway- I believe on Broadway, playing it with Al Pacino as King Herod. So there's an interesting little uh, connection there. So back to Sunset Boulevard, uh, Norman Desmond Desmond sees this as her comeback vehicle. She's going to play Salome, and she's got this horrible handwritten mess of a script that she's been writing for herself. When she finds out Joe is a screenwriter, she asks him to stay, and he starts writing it. One thing leads to another, and eventually he becomes a kept man initially, uh, you know, a kept man without the romance, and eventually she says she's in love with him and she threatens to kill herself and actually slashes her wrists even when he goes out for a night. Uh, he ends up becoming her lover as well. And it's it's all sort of an allegory for Hollywood as a whole, people selling their souls, but also a very unique individual story told by Billy Wilder, one of the great writer-directors with crackling dialogue and beautiful gothic atmosphere to it. And one of the things I find interesting about the film is this contrast I feel like it kind of makes between L.A. and Hollywood. So it's shot it's shot in Hollywood in both the conventional way and that there's you know sounds I don't think they went and actually shot in a mansion so I believe they have sound stages where Norma's you know all of her 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 grand ballroom and all this kind of stuff in her house were built and they live inside that, but then he also goes and shoots on location and all of these LA places, actually using LA as LA. Uh, there's a great documentary uh, by T- I think Tom Anderson called uh, "Los Angeles Plays Itself," and it's about the it's a it's about the different ways that the city is used in movies. You know, not just as a place to build sets, but actually to film one location in the city and kind of manipulate the location. So I'd love to go back and see it and see if it talks about Sunset Boulevard that way, because within this film, you both have a kind of a realistic document of L.A. around mid-century, not too romanticized. You know, everybody's crowded into a drugstore and a little bit desperate as they kind of roam around the flea-bitten corners of the city. And then you have this more romanticized Hollywood this grand mythology with a soundstage with Cecil B. DeMille on it and Norma Desmond's great mansion. But that part is shown even within the film to be a kind of an, of an illusion. And one of the precedents for this story, I think, uh, well, it's explicit in the film itself is great expectations. Uh, Joe, when he first discovers this, this mansion remarks that, you know, it's, it, it reminds him of uh Miss Havisham in that book where this old woman who was abandoned on her wedding day and she went a little bit mad and ran around the house smashing every, all the mirrors, I think. And a big, huge wedding cake is left on the table. Or no, she smashes all the clocks. That's it. So she stops time, literally. And she just spends the next 20 years sitting in her wedding dress inside this house, never leaving with all of her wealth. So clearly that was an inspiration for this, for this film. But the novelty is to kind of bring in a Pip figure who, instead of being seduced by Estella, is seduced by Miss Havisham herself. It's funny to think, too, that in a weird way, Joe and Norma are almost part of the same class. Like, it doesn't strike you that way at, at first glance. She is a world famous, or at least was at one point. She's apparently still hugely wealthy. She talks about owning land and oil wells and all this stuff that she invested in when she was a movie star. So she's not wanting for anything materially but she's just kind of abandoned without her celebrity Uh, but you know she's very wealthy and she's able to economically exploit joe because he's so desperate kind of manipulate him and get him to stay in her clutches and uh, you have this weird dynamic between them which is very fascinating and dramatically rich where He's very materially needy, and she's very spiritual needy, and it's at times hard to tell who's taking advantage of and exploiting who in this situation. But again, when you look at it a certain way, they are both of the same class. They're both basically discarded workers. So both of them had a role to play, something to fulfill, a way to earn their living, and they've been thrown aside. She has plenty of uh, compensation, but she's not able to work. She's not able to to do the thing that, that, uh, that brings her happiness and brings her some sort of sense of fulfillment or, you know, maybe just something more vainglorious than that. But so I found this interesting reviewing this film years ago in a, as a part of a, A a series on Hollywood looking at itself. And most of the other films in that series have like a producer figure or an executive. But it's worth reiterating here this idea that there's usually some sort of powerful mogul figure who actually has the power, not just the wealth, but the actual power within Hollywood. And they're often like the villain of the piece or sometimes somewhat more ambiguous than that. But there's nobody really like that in uh, Sunset Boulevard. And it, I don't think it's just because the system is faceless, which is what I talked about in, in my review I wrote years ago. I think it's also because uh, the 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 film is interested in what it's like to be on the bottom rung of this system. So it, almost to the point where you can't even see whatever's at the top. Uh, there is, I should say, there is one studio figure who Joe goes to in the beginning and tries to pitch a script to. Uh, who has an ulcer, but he's very—he's oddly approachable, even though he's, you know, doesn't give give him a job, and uh, he's, you know, he—he just—he's not an intimidating figure at all. That's what I'm trying to get at. And there isn't really a sense that he's the one who holds all the power in this. It's—it's it's bigger than that. It's more of a system-wide thing. So, looking at it that way, these two characters—the poignant thing about them is that, in a way, they have so much in common, and yet they're so far apart. And in the end, uh, they end up on equal footing. Neither one is getting what they want. They're both fairly abandoned. Joe makes himself abandoned. We'll get into that in a moment. But there's almost something kind of noble about it. These these two losers who kind of found each other. But uh, that's not you know the film does not have a happy ending of them realizing they're meant to be and they're true lovers or something. Uh, he tries to leave her, and she shoots him. And uh, he stumbles and winds up dead in the swimming pool. And that's not a spoiler, by the way, because the film begins with his body floating in the swimming pool. I I guess it's a spoiler to say how he ends up there, but uh, you can kind of guess where it's going from the beginning there. One other character that I need to mention in all of this is Betty Schaefer. She is a young woman who's a friend or the girlfriend of Joe's uh, buddy, who's an assistant director. Uh, there's this sort of solidarity of the all the behind the scenes people in this movie. you know, other than Norma, we don't see any real film stars as characters. They're all like script readers and writers and assistant directors and extras and all that sort of thing. prop men. the actual the Gordon Cole character who will be getting to, I believe, is a head of the props department. and uh, he gets involved with this plot because he works for Cecil B. DeMille. And uh, he calls Norma's house to try and get her car because when Max drives it onto the lot trying to follow up on the ridiculous screenplay that she's written, that she's submitted, that, of course, Cecil B. DeMille wants nothing to do with, uh, this guy, Gordon Cole, who's working for the production, sees her car and wants to get it for a shoot. And so that leads to this whole humiliating sequence where she thinks that she's going to be in a film, that he, the, DeMille is going to produce her film, and she, goes, she drives to the set, uh, to the Paramount lot. And uh, Cecil B. DeMille says, call up Gordon Cole and calls him up and sort of tells him off for for doing that because now, you know, Norma got the wrong idea. And, of course, Gordon Cole is our first big link to Twin Peaks, which we'll get to in a moment. So anyways, though, Betty Schaefer is a script reader and she starts collaborating on on a screenplay with Joe in the evenings when he can kind of sneak away from this house where he's almost being kept prisoner at this point or is really quite literally being kept prisoner, uh, emotionally blackmailed by enormous threats to kill herself if she leaves, and also to withdraw the the funding that he needs to maintain uh, any sort of lifestyle, really. But he goes off to write with Betty, and they're falling in love as the film goes along, and in the end, she confesses to him that she loves him and not his friend. And he realizes that he's being kind of a, a cad. He calls himself a heel for a couple reasons. One is, you know, this is his good good friend's girl. Is he going to just steal her away? And what is he stealing away for? Someone who allows himself to be a kept man who lives this kind of dishonest life where he's taking advantage of a deluded, middle-aged woman. And uh, he, so he ends up having her over to the house uh, and showing her and saying, you know, this is who I am. You don't want me. And she leaves. So that's what kind of leaves Joe in the end really as is isolated and brought down low as Norma herself. And at that point, he tries to go back to his old home in Ohio and leave the Hollywood dream behind, and that's when she shoots him. It kind of gives him a more romantic ending, I guess, in a way which you almost sense subconsciously he kind of wants. The big Lynch film, the big project that this is is most associated with, is Mulholland Drive. That's the film Lynch made in 2001 about a Hollywood actress who has a prominent, famous lover who's going to leave her, and she's so upset, she ends up shooting the uh the or having arranging for a hitman to kill this woman. So that interestingly kind of m- it's it's like almost a mashup of the different characters where she's partly like Joe because she's this more lowly person in the industry who's linked up with this big star, but she's also partly like Norma because she's the really helpless longing one who wants to lash out against the lover who's leaving her. So I find that aspect of the film really quite interesting. Uh, even without all the surrealist filters that is put through. I actually once saw a double feature in LA uh, when I was living there of Sunset Boulevard, Mulholland Drive, which was pretty cool. But we're here to talk about Twin Peaks. And the more you dig into it, the more interesting threads there are between these two works. It's not as obvious, you know, Mulholland Drive and uh, Sunset Boulevard are both explicitly Hollywood films. Twin Peaks is off in the woods of Washington. So you know, that that already puts you off on a different footing. It's, But they do start out in similar ways with a body floating in the water. Uh, this is something pointed out uh, by quite a few people. Daniel Perez Pamias and Marta Lopera Marmol apparently wrote an uh, essay about it, which I haven't read, but you can see the extract online. It's called Buoying Corpses Up, A Journey Between Sunset Boulevard and Twin Peaks. And they write, the body in suspension located in the gap between life and death functions as a hinge between the past and future. Now I find that description interesting because when you look at Twin Peaks as a whole and you look particularly at the way it pivots back to Firewalk with me to show us Laura's life up to that point, and even just on the show itself where it's an investigation into whatever led her to that point, in both cases you are using this floating corpse as a way into the story. Of course, Joe is less kind of a figure of mystery within the film than than Norma Desmond is. So that's kind of an interesting variation on it. But it is striking that they begin that way. And there's also a great line in uh, the film, which makes me think of Twin Peaks itself as kind of a meta narrative, where Joe says, Oh, you think this is going to be your comeback to Norma about her script? And she says, not a comeback. I hate that word. It's a return. And of course, Twin Peaks season three was called Twin Peaks The Return. And supposedly that was a Showtime thing, and Lynch and Frost kind of went back to calling it just Twin Peaks or Season 3 or the limited series afterwards, but I've always liked that title, and this gives me even more reason to like it, because here it is, Twin Peaks, but it's not a comeback, it's a return, you know, this idea that all the critics and media people said Twin Peaks failed, it was just a fad, and now it's back, not uh, to make up for what it had done, but to say... Uh, you know, that it's proud, it's kind of proud of its history and it's embracing it. Like Firewalk with Me in particular is incorporated into uh, Twin Peaks as a point of pride. This film that at the time was a failure, and there's something very Norma Desmond esque about that too. Where we have Cooper sitting there watching essentially Firewalk with Me unfold, uh, Laura Palmer's face up there on the screen in black and white. And uh, there's a great line in Sunset Boulevard where Norma says, uh, we didn't need dialogue. We had faces then. And of course, there is great dialogue in this scene from *Firewalk With Me, but just the face there, very... There's always been something very silent movie actress about Cheryl Lee's performance in that film to me. And I think Grail Marcus has made that comparison at length uh, very evocatively. And so to see Twin Peaks come back with, quote-unquote, the return and just kind of put put all those 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 uh, points that were supposed to be failures back in our faces. its There's something very triumphant about it. It's like Lynch got to play Norma Desmond at the end of this film, coming down the staircase, thinking that all the photographers and cameras are there for her again, and she's a big star, and she's back on a movie set instead of being arrested or carted off to the asylum for going nuts and killing her lover. And it's almost like Lynch got to live that, but for real. Like, he actually got to go back to Cannes and uh, go up the staircase and have everyone taking the pictures and cl- applaud him for Twin Peaks after they booed it in 1992 so viciously. So I love that meta aspect of it. And now, of course, speaking of Lynch, the big connection between the film and, the, and Twin Peaks is the name Gordon Cole. It's a character in the film already described who he is. And in Twin Peaks, Gordon Cole is a FBI agent, Cooper's boss, played by David Lynch. So that's it. Fun bit of commentary. I'll talk about that more in the opening the archive section where I highlight some of my previous comments on the show and film. But in season three, it's emphasized even more when a clip from Sunset Boulevard is played on a screen and it triggers something for uh, the Cooper character, Uh, which is kind of fun on several different levels. To have Cecil B. DeMille be the one in there delivering the line uh, is, is interesting. I think the Diane podcast pointed out, you know, this is DeMille, one of the great... Like, he is the quintessential director uh, who with his sort of, you know, whip by his side, sitting in the director's chair with his megaphone, just the archetypal director figure. So to have him on screen using the name that is used by David Lynch, I just, I love that. There's also a nice shout out in part six of The Return, where Albert is uh, storming into a nightclub or a bar all irritated because it's pouring rain on him and he says fucking Gene Kelly motherfucker or something. Cause you know, singing in the rain. And he's walking past a neon sign for the bar, which says Max Vaughn's. And that's clearly a reference to Max Vaughn Maryling. If it wasn't already kind of obvious, there's a like director's megaphone that is part of the neon sign. So that's kind of a cool shout out, not just to sunset Boulevard, but singing in the rain, two films about films uh, in Hollywood and the silent era. So I like that. But there's a lot of more substantial connections here too to Norma Desmond. I think that's a character who deeply fascinates Lynch and you can see her popping up, bubbling up in various ways throughout Twin Peaks and never more so, never more so than in season three with Audrey Horne. Audrey basically becomes Norma Desmond in this stretch of, uh, of, of story throughout the later episodes. And the backstory of this is fascinating too and it makes it land so much more because you have Sherilyn Fenn who hasn't probably gotten as much work as she should have in in more recent years, and has really relished Audrey and Lynch invited her in to read the screenplay, and she was horrified. Uh, it's not totally established what was in the original draft for season three, but it seems like she was probably going to play a part similar to the uh, the character of her mother in this, where she's beaten up by uh, Richard Horn, who's Audrey's son, is a psychopath. And so it's like, wow. So, and she owns a nail salon or something. And She just felt totally humiliated that this was all they were going to bring her back for. And she was furious. She didn't want to sign the contract. They went back and forth and Lynch wrote a new part for her. So <laughs> I just, I mean, he Sunset Boulevard is one of Lynch's favorite films of all time. And he had to see the connection here of this actress coming back to a director and uh, wanting, you know, wanting more from her role, from her role, wanting to kind of recapture past glory with this director she'd worked with in the past. And here he is basically playing the Cecil B. DeMille role in real life. But ultimately, unlike Norma Desmond, uh, Sherilyn Finn got her way and I think the series is better for it. And I think Lynch was wise to rewrite those passages. So what he wrote instead is to have Audrey as this character isolated from everyone else in the show. We have no idea if she's in a dream world or some sort of delusional state, or if she is in the same sort of geography but just doesn't interact with any of the other people, she's in a house arguing with someone who appears to be her husband, this uh, this little guy named Charlie. And uh, they go back and forth in very cryptic dialogue where she wants to go out and find someone named Billy who says she's in love with, and she's yelling at him, why can't we go? But then she never really quite wants to leave the house. Now, already the similarities with Sunset Boulevard are are popping out there, Uh, just this character isolated in her own home, acting like she wants to leave, but also afraid to leave. I noticed this one line of dialogue in Sunset Boulevard watching at this time, which others have noticed, I I saw on a forum on, I think, Welcome to Twin Peaks, Tom Webker uh, quoted this, the plain fact that she was afraid of that world outside, afraid it would remind her that time had passed. And we get that even more so when Audrey and Charlie do finally leave in one of the last episodes, and she ends up at the Roadhouse, and Eddie Vedder is there playing a song, Out of Sand, which is literally all about time running out in the hourglass and how you can't go back to the past and return to that. And then they play Audrey's dance, and she starts swaying, and I think a light comes on her just like it comes on to Norma Desmond at the end of Sunset Boulevard, and she goes out onto the floor and dances around. So all of this is so fascinating because... It's got a Sunset Boulevard quality on-screen. It's got a Sunset Boulevard quality off-screen, which informs the on-screen, but also kind of exists independently of it. The dialogue between Audrey and Charlie is often somewhat reminiscent of Norma and Joe, this argument, uh, although uh, she's Audrey is much more savage towards Charlie in a way than Norma is towards Joe. She's more manipulative Joe, feeling sorry for herself, whereas Audrey is like telling Charlie she doesn't love him, she hates him, and he's this but he's very patient with her and in that way he's almost more like max von mayerling this figure who she obviously depends on who uh, but he needles her quite a bit more max von mayerling is very respectful of norma and uh, pitying of her but charlie is not so much of audrey but there is the same sort of sense of like a patient figure there people thought maybe he was her doctor they wondered if that was the story going on there and uh, there's also sort of a, a red room quality to uh, but, you know, to Norma's whole life away from the world, this this hidden zone where time, you know, where, where you don't have to be reminded that time has passed, like Miss Havisham, you smashed all the clocks or stopped all the clocks. Another commentator on that forum, vt 85 mentioned, also, Audrey is looking for Billy. The director of Sunset Boulevard was Billy Wilder. I love that, and I love it all the more so when I saw on another forum that, uh, Uh, Lynch actually screened Sunset Boulevard at his studio. It was one of the first screenings he had when he built his, his home studio, and he invited Billy Wilder, who was like 90 years old at the time, but in ill health, so he didn't attend. So the missing Billy there in all this may be Billy Wilder. Another character who's similar to Norma in some ways is Nadine, this character who tries to live in her past, go back and relive her glory days, in this case as a high school student. Now, Actually, the difference there is Nadine didn't really have any glory days. She wasn't actually a happy teenager, as we've learned in dialogue in the past. She was very mousy and watched her future husband, Ed, from afar and forlornly. So that storyline is almost more analogous to, like, a fan of Norma Desmond going and pretending she's Norma Desmond. So that's, like, another storyline altogether in some ways. But Nadine also tries to kill herself at one point. And it's interesting to think, too, how often... uh, Like middle-aged women are sort of characterized in media, where it's like you can be young and have this kind of vanity and and uh, grandeur, so you know, delusions of grandeur, and it's kind of charming or or intoxicating in a way. But then as they get older, it's not allowed as much by society or by media, and so these characters find themselves in this kind of tragicomic place where they can't be the person that they trained themselves so hard to be. And again, that's a difference with Nadine and norma Nadine never was that person that she just wanted to be in some way whereas whereas Norma could be another character tied to Norma Desmond is norma uh Jennings, the owner of the Double R Diner, and that's really at at first glance just by name uh there's a few places that Norma Jennings could have gotten her name from one is norma Desmond the other would be. Uh, Norma Jean, the I can't remember what her last name was, but Marilyn Monroe's actual real name. Now, the interesting thing is Norma is an opposite character personality-wise. She's very down-to-earth, very uh, efficient, runs her business well, modest, not this sort of helpless, uh, grandiose figure like Norma Desmond. But there are some similarities there, too. They're both very lonely. They're filled with regrets and longings for an alternate life. Uh, everyone in, a, in in this world of Twin Peaks is a dreamer in, in one way or another, I think. And with Joe's situation, uh, his character, I think, there's some interesting correspondences there, particularly with season three. The fact that he's this desperate man in debt uh, on the run from people in this sort of chintzy life that he's living kind of reminds you of Dougie in the early—I'm talking about not Cooper coming out of the um, lodge, the purple world— uh, and be and get filling Dougie's shoes quite, uh, you know, literally in some ways. But actually, uh, the original Dougie, the tulpa version that was created, that has lived up to this point and is taken over or replaced by by Cooper. Uh, that character also is kind of this sad sack who's hit a low point in his life and is involved with these shady financial uh, situations and on the run from people trying to collect debt from him. There's something vaguely similar to these characters' trajectories in the in the beginning of Sunset Boulevard and uh, Twin Peaks season three, and then they kind of diverge and go off in different directions because uh, Dougie Coop is more of sort of a magical figure in some ways that actually brings redemption to a lot of the people he comes in contact with. Uh, another similarity here is with the much maligned Evelyn Marsh storyline in uh, season two of Twin Peaks, where. James rides off in his motorcycle and ends up staying in a room over the garage of an older woman whose car he's fixing. Now, it would be easy to attribute that to Sunset Boulevard, but as I've already mentioned in uh, other coverage, that actually is even more closely related to a noir film from the same period called Angel Face with Robert Mitchum. So that may just be coincidence that they're both sort of using noir tropes uh, because I think Angel Face was the more direct connection. But But given Lynch's love for Sunset Boulevard, that's certainly worth noting. Uh, Joe himself is very much an Albert Rosenfield type of character, sardonic, cynical, the way he looks at the world, but with a romantic streak and some sense of honor. But there are some big differences there as well uh, that I would have to point out. Albert doesn't quite have the weakness that Joe has, and uh, he also, in a way, is more steadfast. Like, he may be mean, but he has a code of honor that I think he holds to a little more tightly than Joe. Maybe Joe comes through in the end with that, but... Uh, he has a lot of slip ups in between and the idea of this this guilt in the relationship between N- norma and uh joe where he feels this frustration with her and but also kind of a responsibility to her reminds me of beverly and her husband in uh season 3 where uh, ben horns new assistant is almost having an affair with him and she goes home to her husband who seems to have some sort of Terminal or serious critical illness. He's bald. He's attached to a, uh, a, I I think, a ventilator or something, and he is uh, sad that she hasn't come home sooner. And she's like, "Don't guilt trip me. I know you're trying to manipulate me." And we just get this quick little snapshot of their of their life together, and that I think has some inflections of of Sunset Boulevard as well. And finally, uh, Cooper showing up at Carrie's door, uh, Carrie Page's door in the final episode, just tracking her down and coming across this weird house, knocking on the door, finding this woman here who he thinks used to be somebody else. Obviously, heavy shades of Sunset Boulevard there. Lynch generally loves the idea of somebody arriving in a strange place and finding someone somehow vaguely familiar, but in this case, really on the opposite end of the socioeconomic scale. A few other random motifs I noticed watching at this time. One is Uh, They're doing a burial for a monkey in the beginning of Sunset Boulevard. Of course, that evokes the monkey at the end of Fire Walk with me. But also, the monkey is under a sheet, and its arm falls out from under the sheet. And uh, that reminds me of Laura's arm falling out in the morgue when Albert lands on top of her. A salesman says to Joe at one point when they're looking at different coats, well, as long as the lady's paying for it, why not take the Vicuna? And of course, a Vicuna coat uh, plays a big role in the... uh, Josie and Cooper's storyline on the show. Cooper getting shot by Josie and they find out because she had a Vicuna coat that shed on the floor outside the room. And finally, uh, we have Lucy shooting Mr. C at the end of Season 3, taking him out kind of unexpectedly uh, just in a in a way, in a weird way, like Norma shooting Joe at the end of Sunset Boulevard. And uh, just this sort of shift in power dynamics that you you, you wouldn't think that you would have there. Norma is uh, really more the villain of the piece, whereas Mr. C is sort of the villain in season three. But there's enough ambiguity there, at least with Sunset Boulevard, that I suppose you could kind of see it both ways. And here's some feedback I received about Sunset Boulevard and its connections to Twin Peaks from a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Jake responded. He said, lots to chew on as always. It had never occurred to me that the Billy Audrey that the Billy, who Audrey is raving about, might be Billy Wilder, but on reflection, it seems as plausible a theory as any other. Per Room to Dream, the actual Wilder told Lynch he loved Blue Velvet. Ultimately I think the Cooper of the Return is as much Norma Desmond as Audrey is, with part sixteen very pointedly juxtaposing their respective comebacks. The ultimate Norma D, as you say, is Lynch himself hoping to recapture a single moment of unequivocal mainstream glory, which in the event, he didn't quite manage, though the fact that the return was initially programmed directly against Game of Thrones suggests that at least some people thought he had a chance. This is the kind of topic that can keep me free-associating indefinitely, but I'll restrict myself to now, for now to one further observation. You mentioned that Normandy's mansion resembles the Red Room, but isn't there also an affinity between Max and Norma as a duo And the fireman and senorita Dido? That's a great comparison. The latter pair, as much as the former, seem like survivors from the long-ago shipwreck of silent cinema. The fireman is some of Max's Germanic grimness, and the senorita's look is pure 1920s movie queen, albeit less Swanson than Theda Barra. Their home, which has its mausoleum qualities, reminds me both of Norma's Mansion and Xanadu in Citizen Kane, another film that starts with the death of a protagonist, then circles back though that isn't the only reason i'm inclined to think both wilder and lynch had it in mind great comment and jake uh you said you're going to limit yourself for now that's fine that was six months ago so unlimit yourself and give us some more thoughts on sunset boulevard because i want to keep reading your uh free associations there i love that comparison with the fireman and, and seniorita dito, dito there and um it's actually worth noting too i cover mark frost series Buddy Pharaoh in the Mark Frost video, and that has like a whole Sunset Boulevard episode where there's a character who is longing for the glory days and has like an obsession with the Egyptians and kidnaps someone and tries to sacrifice them in their old home. It's like very explicitly uh, Sunset Boulevard influenced, and uh, I didn't even have room to put that in there because there was already so much stuff to draw upon in that in that video so just another thing that kind of left got left by the wayside so mark frost has an interest too obviously i responded wow love that observation as you say the possible connections are endless i wrote obvious but i meant endless and i said i did mean to contrast cooper's comeback with audrey as a different version of norma's fantasy and nightmare but it ended up getting lost in the shuffle yeah, that is a that is something that uh, is another connection there. The Audrey Cooper coming back from the FBI and Audrey coming back in a possibly a mental institution or whatever. One is what Norma wishes she could be and one is what she fears, as Jake said, just to expand on that point. And I said, I am the FBI is certainly emphatic, iconic, and absurd enough to be worthy of Norma Desmond. So Jake responded to this, said, yes, indeed. I am the FBI is a lot like I'm ready for my close-up. When I first heard the former line, I screamed with laughter, which was also sheer joy at the audacity and perfection of it. That's it for this episode. If you uh, would like to support this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts in particular. That's the platform where it gets the most attention. Uh, you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash Movies. For a dollar a month, you get my main podcast episodes where I talk about a Twin Peaks topic and... Probably uh, starting in March, more infrequently film topics, although through February, I'll be covering a film every month. And uh, also, you get advance access to my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast. And then, for $5 a month, you get the full Twin Peaks conversations every month. So, I publish part of that on YouTube, but more than half is always reserved just for the $5 a month tier. So, that's a great perk of that. In January, we will be continuing the Twin Peaks Cinema Public Podcast. With a new subject, the new subject, the new uh, grouping theme that's going to go for another three months is Small Town Blues. And here is the first film that will be featured uh, under that umbrella. <laughs> Drake McHugh, maybe you've heard about me. You wonder if you haven't the way people gab. And most of what they say is true. But the one thing they can't say is that I ever do anything behind anyone's back. I can't see anyone. Ever. Don't you know that? You don't have to ask questions to understand that, do you?